You're listening to episode 116 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm Simon Jones. We're recording this on the 30th of September 2020 here in Norwich. That will be October by the time the episode goes out. So Simon, before we get into today's episode, tell us a little bit about what's been going on this week because we've had a busy one. We have, yeah. We just launched a brand new translation section on the website, uh, giving it much more prominence and people can go and find out all the stuff we do around translation because we've we've always had it as one of our kind of core pillars of what we do at the National Centre for Writing. But on the website in particular, it's not had the profile it probably should have done. So yeah, people can now head over there and find our nice spangly new translation section and find out all the work that we do. Yeah, and on a related note, we've been hosting a number of free online events recently, the most recent of which was called Who is This Mythical English Reader? And that was a celebration on the eve of International Translation Day. We also announced the winners of this year's Emerging Translator Mentoring Scheme, which is in its 10th anniversary year. So if you head over to the website under What's On and click Meet the World, you'll find all of our past events that have run so far. You can catch up with them for free on YouTube. And we've also got another event coming up on Tuesday, the 6th of October, called European Writers on War and Conflict. And this is an event uh, where we're bringing together some writers from across the world who'll be talking about their writing process and their most recent uh, works of fiction. And they'll also be talking a bit about the process of being translated into English. And as if that wasn't enough stuff for one week, the Early Career Awards are also starting up again with the Desmond Elliott Prize once more open for submissions. Yes. So we've spoken on the podcast quite a few times, actually, about last year's Desmond Elliott Prize, which was the first time that the National Centre for Writing had taken it over and was running the prize. So Thursday, the 1st of October is the official opening date of the 2021 Desmond Elliott Prize, which, as I'm sure you all know, is very unique in supporting early career novelists to establish their writing careers. And it is awarded each year to the book that we think is the best debut fiction fiction novel across the UK and Ireland. And the winner will receive £10,000 to shape their developing career. Not bad. Not bad at all. So if you head over to the website under What's On and look up Early Career Awards, you will find all of the details about the Desmond Elliott Prize, along with our suite of other prizes that we run each year. And on that topic, Simon, um, as part of the Early Career Awards, we also offer a really great resource, which is completely free, for all writers. Yeah, that's right. So obviously with an award, you tend to have one winner and the early career awards are all about supporting those early career writers and pushing them on towards their future projects. But we wanted to make sure that there was also something that would be useful for everyone because not everyone is in the right position yet in their writing careers to be submitting to awards. And so we have these early career resources packs. We've been putting them out every couple of months since the start of the year, and it is time for another one. So the October pack is all about world building. And this is something that I am particularly excited about um, as a a genre writer who tends to write fantasy and science fiction. World building is, of course, particularly useful. But I think what's great about the pack of resources we put together here is we've got a really interesting cross-section of writers and emphasises that world building is critical regardless of the type of thing that you're doing. So even if you've written something set in you know modern day, you still are creating a fictional world of some sort. So, you know, if you're if you've set something in London, you know, what is your version of London? Uh, you can't just kind of take it for granted that everyone has the same version. This pack is brought to you by us, obviously, in cooperation with Arts Council England, who have been really great. So here's what we've got in this month's pack. We have a podcast chat with comics writer Kieran Gillen, which is coming up in just a few moments. We have a lovely video interview with Abby Dare talking to Sarah Bauer, Abby, of course, being one of the nominees for the Desmond Elliott Prize this year. We also have an article from Fahana Sheik about world building in short stories, because the requirements of building out a world in a short story are obviously quite different to doing it in a longer form. You've got to be a lot more efficient. And we also have a completely free online course from our wonderful tutor, Ian Netterton, all about world building in science fiction. 
And you can find out the details of all of this stuff over on the website or indeed down in the podcast show notes where we will link you to everything you need to know. So Simon, tell us a little bit more about this week's episode and our very special guest. Yeah, so Kieran Gillen is a writer that I've been reading for a very long time in in various guises. Uh, He started off as a journalist and wrote for PC gaming magazines back in the day. He then kind of segued into comics in the the mid-late 2000s. He's kind of perfectly attuned to my particular (laughs) sensibilities. He's had phenomenal success in the comics world. He's got lots of his own projects that he's written, such as Phonogram and Uber. The Wicked and the Divine was a huge book that ran for several years and wrapped up last year. He's currently publishing Die, Once and Future and Ludocrats. As well as his own books, he has also written extensively for Marvel and for Star Wars, working on X-Men, Thor, Journey into Mystery, Iron Man books and the Darth Vader book. So Kieran's a particularly good person to talk to when it comes to world building, because as well as creating his own worlds, he's also worked extensively in pre-existing worlds and franchises like the Marvel stuff. And I talked to him about what it's like playing in other people's universes that have maybe existed for decades, as well as working on his own material. Kieran is someone who's known for doing quite a lot of research, and he talks about how he kind of converts that into world building and then filters that through to the readers. It's a uh, a brilliant conversation for anyone interested in world building, anyone interested in comics or just writing in general. There's tons of really good information in here. So over to Simon with Kieran. Hi, Kieran. Thanks very much for joining us today. Oh, lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about world building, which is the, the latest resource pack that we've put together. And uh, I noticed just after I asked you to do this, that uh, you actually did a world building panel at the virtual comic con this year as well so you seem to be the person people go to for world building <laughs> it's funny that was an asynchronous thing i think we recorded that like about two months ago uh so it was, we i was asked i did that before you asked me about it but it just seemed to be the sort of thing that turns up quite regularly especially with what i'm doing at the moment i thought of you straight away really when we were putting together uh this world building pack because some stories that you read can feel a little bit like they're being made up as they go along Whereas with you, your books always feel, as from the reader perspective at least, very worked out, very deliberate. And the world building in particular seems to all kind of hang together from, from start to finish. So whether we're talking about like the Pantheon in Wicked and Divine or the powers in Uber and how they all kind of fit into the worlds you make. And I guess I was curious about how much of that detail is worked out in advance or is that just how you make it feel to the reader as you're going along? Uh, my general rule is writing is about faking it artfully. It's very much like all of writing is a magic trick <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the what you actually present to the uh, the reader. So of course, that kind of like, ideally, someone should never know how much or how little I know because I'm certainly not going to tell them uh, in the point of the story. Um, in practice, it really does, like most things in writing, depend on the actual task I'm doing. And this kind of, the world building is normally as detailed as I require and mostly no more and i say that mostly because i've been known to get lost and play with the world building but that's normally because i'm interested in the concept of world building and other times i've got a a shape of an idea and then it's a question of just always say yes in other words once i've actually once i've actually said something in the story it's now 100 percent solid and i just have to build off there it's one of those kind of like as long as you're actually quite rigorous in your thinking in terms of like world building uh you can sort of flow uh, from previous decisions. But yeah, broadly, I do more world building than most people, I think. At least most people in comics. Yeah, and I guess the thing you were saying there is that you commit to it, regardless mm. of, of kind of where you've gone, so that in future it's about not contradicting what you've set up previously. Exactly. Or if you are, you do it as a clever reveal in terms of, oh, everything you knew was wrong. <laughs> it's that kind of. <laughs> yes. And in terms of world building, what where does it kind of arrive in the development of say a new project because it always feels so interwoven with you know the plot and the characters are those things that get developed all simultaneously in your mind in almost all projects um the person and the people traveling through the world comes first i say like that broadly because the next section will be something like uber uber is like a story set in world war ii and it's specifically about historic a quasi-historic uh sort of science fiction story the idea that we have a we have a schism in the history and it 
and things go a different way. As such, it's such a world scale book. It's about, okay, I'm going to follow through the implications of this world building and I'm going to have people in it. And even then, the people I choose are about what I want the world to illustrate. Usually, though, it's the other way around. I remember like um, I was on a panel with um, uh, Marjorie Lou, uh, the amazing writer of Monstrous, uh, which is a, a big world building fantasy comic. And she was uh, talking about how monstrous the problems that coming together. And I was actually having a similar thing in that I was having real trouble working on a book because I had so much of the world building. I knew how the world operated. I knew what the world said uh, and what I was, you know, how it was meant to feel, but it just wasn't, wasn't clicking. Um, and she was talking about how she was doing the same thing in monstrous is that monstrous was took a long time to come together. And eventually she kind of realized that the problem was that she didn't have a set of eyes to see the world through. You know, the point, uh, the Middle Earth is kind of pointless without Frodo. As much as Tolkien clearly enjoyed Middle Earth, um, you know, uh, Frodo and the eyes you see the world through give the world meaning and also says what has, has to happen in the world. Uh, and, you know, the idea of um, the world being something to illuminate, which is most interesting about your characters, is also certainly there. And this is one of the things I think... Um, when people talk about world building, they they think about Tolkien and that the idea of like sitting down and writing your elvish language or all the manner, all the, the weird mechanistic stuff I did in, in all manner of books of mine. Um, but you know, world building isn't isn't every you know every single book involves a degree of world building in the kind of like if you said it in London, what is your London like? Is your London like really like nineteen eighties and grimy and seedy and basically like New York, or is is it like this coral reefer city with like this enormous multicultural elements and you know what does your real world feel like you know and that works if you do genre it's like in your world are place good people are they actually fundamentally corrupt people you know and all these ideas of what you do in the real world is also world building and that's just applies equally as much to stuff you're building from the ground up as well. Yeah, I mean, what you were talking about there as well is, is you know, you have the detail of the world building that you might have in research notes and some mm. file on your hard drive somewhere, but then you've got how you actually then reveal that world to the reader, which mm. is kind of a, a separate thing. So as you say, you know, Tolkien had all these appendices, but uh, that those weren't always the most critical thing to the story itself. Um, and in Wicked and Divine, I'm, I'm thinking like the way you reveal that, you know, it's not a, a massive info dump at the start of the story. You know, we have a, a fairly a relatively gentle introduction to the rules of the Pantheon and what's going on. And actually a lot of the complexity doesn't come along until, well, years later in the writing of that. Mm. Especially, you know, Wicked Divine is a book about the reveal of information in that kind of Wicked Divine is about storytelling in terms of the book lies to the reader at almost every stage, but in, a, in lots of different ways. And so the idea is the book is very much about like a critical reading of story and especially a critical building of world building in terms of the metaphor I always do is the, is the story about the elephant in terms of when you feel the elephant, you touch the trunk and you think it's a snake or you touch the side, you think it's a wall because you're seeing different bits of the elephant. And the, the fundamental thing about Wiktiv's world building was the idea, this is very complicated and it's very easy to make assumptions about. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. when people leap to the assumptions, those the, the, both the readers and the uh, characters tend to come to a wrong end um but you say it's definitely kind of it's one of the classical areas of people who are world builders or you know people who really like the world building which also crosses over people who really like research because world building is just kind of research you've made up <laughs> you know <laughs> uh and trust often quite the same thing like a lot of my world building is because i in a book like Die, I've researched the entire history of the fantasy genre and the history of role-playing games and the history of war games and how these, so all these very real-world facts, and then I've transformed it into a single world. And with Wikdiv, it's about the history of art and the history of, like, um, religion and culture. Uh, and in the case of Uber, it's obviously, like, World War stuff. So this is all yet more real-world stuff, which I then make a, a whole load of extra stuff on top of. Um, and the urge, I think, that strikes a lot of people is, I've got to show you everything. You know, and then you basically, you don't write Lord of the Rings, you write Lord of the Rings appendices, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so the lesson is always actually what, what to edit, what to know. Because this is also the difficult thing, is the more complicated the world, the, the question of what is actually necessity comes into mind. As in, okay, do I need to have a special word for doors? And like, because if I do, people are immediately going to drop out the story because the word for door is different. But if maybe if this is a world of, you know, maybe if your story is really about how doors can have different names, maybe that's worth it. You know what I mean? So all the way through, it's kind of what do people need to know to understand? 
I must admit, I, I probably tend to lead slightly too abstruse in that, um, as a people who get me, you know, if they really do get me, but they are, I do tend to drop people in situ and let them kind of piece together detective style. I kind of, uh, as a reader, I'm quite into the idea of um, just piecing together the world as you move through it in the same way you would do if you visited a foreign country. You know, you things start making sense to you in that way. Yes, and actually almost like visiting a foreign country, you, you, you don't really want to feel too comfortable because then you might as well have stayed at home. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of that elephant analogy you were talking about, presumably you know it's an elephant. <laughs> it's then just about <laughs> which bits of the elephant you, you introduce the reader to. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, I'm deeply uncomfortable with the how manipulative writing can feel, <laughs> especially if like if it's somebody who does world build or plot or do any intensive planning. The idea that you are, you know, that I described earlier, the card trick of writing, the magic trick of writing, the idea that I do know what's happening and you don't. So if like the power differential there is <laughs> something I've always been a bit uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also part of the job, you know what I mean? Because people come to a magician, they want to see a trick. Um, and with world building, it's, I said earlier, the how much do you actually give away? Um, and in Wikdiv, there were certain elements like I left deliberately soft in the world building i knew how the story ended i knew what the point was i knew how the characters delineated them about three quarters of the characters i knew how they delineated um but i left spots for me to explore because i also know that if you plan everything at the beginning it becomes point it just becomes typing because mm-hmm. like, imagine just if i knew everything at wikdiv completely at the beginning it would break it i kind of knew what the point of stuff was and i certainly had options but like very key rules i only decided for sure about them when I actually wrote them and present them to the reader. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the differences like for a comic writer, as in somebody who works in monthly comics, you do have that kind of slowly releasing bits out. And when, when you've released it, it's just done. But someone like a novelist, they will like write the whole novel and then go back and edit and then release it, which is actually a, a, something I envy, shall we say, because <laughs> it's <laughs> you, you're able to sort of delay decisions a little bit longer if you're writing novels. You know, a series of novel changes that, of course. Yes, yeah, and you also get to kind of cross-check your decisions before anyone else mm, actually gets definitely. to see it, whereas any form of serialised storytelling, you, you have to commit to things and you get to the, a key plot decision or you're killing off a character or something and you sit there and you think, do I really want to do this because this is going to influence my writing for the next year? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's like when you actually pull the trigger on something, you're incredibly nervous. It's one of these things that when you're actually behind the screen of writing and you know you can... It, because, you, you know, as a writer, you're not seeing this. As a reader, you see the swan gracefully moving across the surface. And as a writer, you're, you're very much the flailing legs beneath. <laughs> you're aware of exactly how much chaos is going on beneath there. And I always remember, although I mentioned Tolkien not for the first time in this piece, but like even Tolkien threw in the Ents. You know, it's like Ents weren't originally part of Middle Earth. And eventually he retroactively added it to this, his kind of will building because he just wanted to have the ants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this wonderful bit in the um, Silmarillion where you kind of, you just dropped Galadriel's name at a list of, a, at the end of a very long list of elves, where it's clearly gone, actually, Galadriel needs to be in here. You know what <laughs> I mean? And that comes back to the world building can be, re- you know, revised. And, and until it, no matter how detailed you make it, it can always be reconsidered and, until it's presented to the reader. That's, honestly, that's what I think I'm trying to imprint here in terms of the fluidity, even when you're doing incredibly complicated things. Um, there's still the option to press delete. Yes, I think one of my favourite moments in Die is uh, is, is when the, the Tolkien figure kind of summons an eagle to, to solve an inconvenience <laughs> and doesn't really work out for it. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, that, that's, um, that's a, that, that issue is one of those interesting bits in terms of world building where you've got Die where it's very clearly it's a meta-fantasy. It's a fantasy planet made of uh, other people's fantasy stories. And, not in a, and so but not in a kind of one-for-one way. In other words, I, the Tolkien region is very much about Tolkien without being Middle-earth, as in it's a World War One region. This is about like the things that went into Tolkien's work, and the other regions are similar in that way. Um, um, but then you kind of get the push and pull between what is actually presented as like halfway between in-joke and poetry. I think that, that, <laughs> that eagle thing, as you describe, is one of them. And the other stuff is specifically, this is actually, no, this is real. And the push and pull between all those things is interesting. I mean, something I regularly think about, because I said this earlier in terms of how tough my world building is, speaks to what kind of story it is. Uh, in the, Uber is always the extreme. As an Uber is, um, the whole concept is, this is a world where we treat superhumans like machines. 
you know, the idea these are basically pieces of military hardware. So everything is all about the interaction of rules. Like one of the definitions of superhero comics, as in Spider-Man will always defeat Doctor Doom, because, you know, that's what Spider-Man does, or Galactus, or the Hulk, or whoever. If the story demands it, it will happen. Conversely with Ubu, the whole idea was, okay, this is a world where Spider-Man will always get beaten by the Hulk. <laughs> just because, just because, in the same way that uh, a tank will always get destroyed by an Apache helicopter. You know, these are just machines for jobs. And that's like, it's, always, it's a war story, not heroism. So it's a story about war rather than a story about this kind of heroism. And so anyways, it all has to be that kind of weird clockwork. And the other end, you've got some like uh, phonogram, which is a story about pop music being magic. Um, and it has will, it has really clearly very intense will building, but it's deliberately a literary kind of will building, as in kind of like magic basically works by metaphors for things that songs really do. As if I cannot make a, work out a way f- to make this plot beat a metaphor for something that music really does to human beings, I don't do it. <laughs> Which means that it's um, it's so- the whole world building is softer edges. But at the same time, it's clearly talking about something um, real. And that's the kind of um, the grounding of it, if you will. Um, so it's, that's something like even stuff, which is a bit, leads a little bit more... Um, magic realism still has a kind of world building because the world building speaks to the aesthetic and the aesthetic has softer edges. Yeah. I think the range of, of world building in your books is, is really fascinating because you've kind of jumped across so many different genres and styles. And uh, something I really appreciate is the way you really shift the style of delivery and the tone to match whatever the setting is. So like Uber has the feeling that you're almost watching a documentary and uh, that there's the style of delivery and the captions and, and everything is is kind of deliberately dry and factual, which makes it all mm. the more horrific. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, as you say, like Wicked and Divine and Phonogram uh, has, has a very, very different style of delivery. So it's not only that it's a different world, but the way you bring people into it feels very different as well. I mean, like that's always one of my goals in terms of, I think I said earlier, but like it's always a question of what do I want this to feel like? And in case of Uber, it's like quite often Uber's really boring. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like I'm trying to make it feel like a textbook. So like the, the juxtaposition, the absolute horrific stuff and the stuff which is deliberately very dry. It's not like Uber has many jokes in. Um, conversely, it's like, you know, uh, I did book, like Young Avengers. I, I knew the whole thing was meant to, this level of giddy popness to it. Like I wanted it to feel like a dance track. Um, and all these kind of stuff like pull together. It's just very much like I mean, especially in comics, because comics is um this sort of bastard medium of multiple art forms pulled together. And so, especially you also work with an artist, and an artist is basically imagine like you can certainly change your pro style as a writer, and you know, and I do a lot with the captions like that. But like working with an artist, it means that you are having radically different ways of writing, as in something like Die with like the kind of these are an Aeson kind of like poetry of uh, Stephanie, which is very amorphous and very um, indirect. It's very different from working on someone like Jamie, who's all very clean edges. Um, it's a bit like, like uh, Jamie is like basically being like a dance producer, someone like, like Daft Punk. You're putting the beats down. You're trying to basically have this energy and proportion to it. While Stephanie is a bit like collaborating with the ocean, <laughs> you know? And that's kind of, and if, as a, if you're, if you're working in prose, you can choose to do that. And obviously many great writers have across the years. But at the same time, in comics, you have to do that. <laughs> you have no choice to it. And you realise that all these things are going to speak to the effect of your book. Because especially in, like, if you pick up either of those, like Die and Wicked Divine, the books with Stephanie and Jamie, um, you immediately open it and you, you enter a world and the world just feels different. I mean, uh, Jamie does a street corner and it feels authentic. It feels like shiny and like... Um, music video but it feels like London. Like Stephanie, when she draws my hometown with Stafford and she makes it look like the most beautiful place on earth, like some kind of like um, uh, Rivendell sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and that's just a very different kind of, she's immediately drawing nostalgia. She's drawing like how a place might once have felt. Um, so yeah, I mean, all those, for me, all that stuff ties together as well. Yeah, when it comes to working with artists, because on the podcast, we mostly have talked to novelists um, rather than comic writers. And so the, the the fact that you collaborate with an artist is something that we haven't really talked about very much on the pod. And when it comes to world building, how much of it is collaborative and how much of it comes from you that you kind of deliver a brief and how much comes from the artist providing their own input? 
this is like all comic relationships. If you're if you're writing an artist, because obviously many artists write for themselves, it's always a bit like forming a band. Is the metaphor I use? Like, there's various people try to do. Um, they try to apply a film metaphor in terms of like who is the director in comics, and I think that's misleading. Mm. I think comics are much more like bands in terms of about interplay, and in other words, all bands form their own dynamics. So to use that uh, example of Jamie and uh, Stephanie, like Jamie, I actually I do all the world building. In other words, I've all of the, all of Wickdiv's history and like all the research going back to who are the pantheons, who are the pop stars. Um, that's all, you know, it's all me. And I take it to Jamie and Jamie works out how to execute it. Um, and Jamie, and that of course includes like, what do they look like? You know, uh, and I throw ideas on the page, but then Jamie will always come back with more. Conversely, Stephanie is a bit more, I do as much world building on die as I did on Wiktiv, but then Stephanie will bring back a lot more. As in Stephanie is going to, um, uh, you know, I mentioned her, the metaphor that the C earlier, but you know, Stephanie is going to throw ideas on the page and throw ideas back. And then I try to synthesize them. So there's a kind of a bit more of a push and pull there. Um, and it speaks to the nature of the book. I mean, um, there's a kind of dreamlike nature to die, which kind of comes from the fact it's got more fingers on it, I think. So yeah, it's one of those things you essentially have to negotiate yourself. But for me, it's like, I um, I feel like I need to put a lot more work in. Like I'm aware that in terms of pure hours, an artist does more work than a writer does in a comic. Because a writer, whilst a comic script is heavier than any film script in existence, it's, it's just... Google some comic scripts, especially mine. They are lud- they can be ludicrous. Um, it's still not as much work as in pure man hours as a drawing a comic. So, in other words, I tend to do quite a lot of other stuff. So, you know, I'm always that's why, I'm, at least to some level, my world building is like it is because I want to put some hours in because uh, I don't really feel that I have committed enough <laughs> unless I've actually gone and put those hours in. Um, which is something I think, like, okay, at least the artists I work with seem to appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's notable as well that you've worked with the same artists quite a few times, and on Wicked and Divine in particular. Obviously, you and Jamie went through the whole thing together, which is not always the case. You know, I've read some really good comics where the artist changes so often that the contribution of the visuals. Seems to become slightly less because there, there isn't a kind of a constant visual style. Whereas a lot of the work you've done, you've had the benefit of having artists that are able to stick with it long term. Definitely, I mean, it's one of the things about world building is that we had a few we had a few guest artists on Wikdiv, and Di is just Stephanie though. Is that the imagine if people's prose style changed fairly regularly in a book? Like you can do that, you know. Obviously, you know, read Ulysses, <laughs> but like the idea of many kinds of books is that you want to sort of settle into the voice and the voice carries you along and in some ways that's what having a steady artist does in comics like you become okay this is this book and it feels like this and you follow the storytelling rhythms of it something like we can divine we do change even when it's just me and jamie we deliberately change up the method quite a lot because we're a book that wants to be a little bit spikier Mm -hmm. but there's certainly other times me and jamie have worked together and we deliberately step back and we try to like let the story just sort of roll out at its own sort of pace i guess a big part of why it made a lot of sense to talk to you about world building as well is because as well as your own books, you've also worked extensively in other people's worlds over at Marvel and Lucasfilm and that kind of thing. And I guess a key question is how different it is to play around in somebody else's world that has already been extensively built, uh, potentially over decades in both those cases, compared to creating something yourself and what kind of what different challenges are there when you're going into a pre-existing franchise it's interesting it's one of the things about doing a work for hire job is that um as you say so much is actually set in advance but the question is how much is that in advance do you get to redefine and how much is actually needs to say the same because for example i've uh, let's compare like working for the star wars books and working for like the marvel superhero books like in the Star Wars books, specifically, there is a tone, and that tone is, quote-unquote, Star Wars, because you kind of know what Star Wars feels like. This is one of the things where you want it to feel new, but at the same time, you want it to feel Star Wars. There's certain words people use, there's certain phrases, there's certain like bits of slang. Like, if you put like modern slang into a Star Wars character's mouth, it would feel wrong. You know, and it's kind of like, do you know what does the toilet look like in Star Wars? All these kind of questions you want to stay true. Um, and if I... So when I was writing Star Wars, the approach was actually more like writing a historical novel. Like I basically researched the canon and worked out what stories that want, someone could tell in a period. So it's like a, I did a book called Darth Vader, which is about 
the what Darth Vader got up to between A New Hope and Empire. And for me, that involved me looking at the te- all the films and the, the extended canon and going, right, okay, end of Star Wars. Darth, you know, the Death Star explodes. Darth Vader is the sole, pretty much the sole survivor. Um, and it's the biggest military disaster of all time. And at the start of the sec- uh, stock of Empire, you have Darth Vader coming back and he's more powerful than he's ever been. He's, he's force choking and killing people. He doesn't actually kill anyone in the first movie like that. He's kind of, he's more like the bodyguard, the watchdog. Whilst in the second movie, he's much more like the main man. So like, that's a bit weird. Like you would think he would have been, you know, but if I'd actually blown up a Death Star, I'm pretty sure I'd have been sacked. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, So I sort of realized between the two, there's an implied story. It's the, it's the fall and rise of Darth Vader. And there's also a secondary thing is he discovers he has a son, you know, so in the, in the gap between the two movies, he has the moment he realizes that his life has been a lie. So that's kind of, right, that's what our story is. And then after work, and then the world building comes to that. So it's like, okay, if Darth Vader loses status after the end of the first movie, he must have people who gain status. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what the story becomes. And also he, he must at some point discover that uh, Luke Skywalker lives. And how's that going to happen? So those kind of, you look at the elements you need and that leads to, uh, the characters I chose, like Dr. Afro and the droids who come in. And this is one of those kind of um, bits where the, the, the soft edge between world building and character building kind of starts seeing, as you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. As in, like, I was having something the personal is political and the political is personal, that, that kind of idea. And all these kind of ideas of what world building is also means what kind of people are in the world. And therefore, what people are also selecting. And of course, you go t- too far down that road, you end up with like all decisions are meaningless and it's all just one thing called writing. <laughs> like any, any, breakdown between the, uh, them is just pointless uh, so don't go that um so that's that's star wars and over, the, over on the other hand you've got the marvel books and marvel has been publishing a lot of different sorts of comics all of which are in the same universe for like a long period of time and you've got you know you've got stuff like squirrel girl which is like this this light delightful comedy book and then you've got something like the avengers which is obviously let's say jonathan hickman's avengers which is this big science fiction hard-edged epic and then you've got stuff like the, uh, the Punisher. And the Punisher is normally street-level book. It's gritty. It's basically like a vigilante comic. So like all those books are happening in the same world. And then you sort of realise every single book in the Marvel Universe has its own world-building. It's got some facts which are the same. Like, you know, uh, cities have the same name. There's um, Fantastic Four's building in New York. All those things are bits of world-building. But the real world-building is in how the world feels to move through. Um, changes. So like Squirrel Girl's New York is very different to the Punisher's New York. You know, no one shoots anyone in the head in Squirrel Girl, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so the job as a writer coming to a Marvel book is, okay, what is my New York? What is my, what is my take of the Marvel Universe? What is the tone we're trying to present here? And how can you align that with the masses of pre-existing world building? Because in the real way is um, the fact that Star Wars world building is a lot more defined, as in it does tie together mostly still. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of been planned and, you know, constructed like, I always use the metaphor of like a, a palace's gardens, you know? The idea is it's grown, it's designed to be beautiful, and it's all very planned out. Whilst Marvel, because they've got so many of these stories and so many different characters, um, it's a bit more like a rainforest. <laughs> and it's also Marvel's world building is in some degree contradictory. You know, it's like Punisher was originally a Vietnam vet and what vet he is has moved forward across time. <laughs> you know, there's this kind of always slightly tweaking the world building, which of course means as a writer, you do have the ability to look at the history and think, okay, how can I, what arguments can I make with the text? Or is there anything I can excise to make a story work in 2020? You know? Yeah, the Marvel books have that kind of sliding timeline, don't they? That uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. keeps them up to date, yet doesn't quite invalidate the previous stuff. Yeah, and it's always for me. I mean, if you're doing like a faithful book, like a completely faithful book, I always say like the, it's the recent continuity you have to look at most. It's that kind of like what when I took over the X Men, it was like what was Storm doing in the last five years in Marvel Universe, and anything you go further back, the less important it becomes because most people won't remember it. And there's, you know, you've got to be accessible to new readers. And a lot of it's just um, almost trivia, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As in, you're trying to make sure there's a, there's a continuity with the recent past, as opposed to a break with the recent past. However, there's also the thing about 
comics. Uh, you notice I said Jonathan Hickman's uh, Avengers, which is implies it's different from Aaron's Avengers, and it's different from like um, Stanley and Jack Kirby's Avengers, um, because they are deliberately choosing what tonal aspects they're going to bring to the fore, and they get to kind of have a take on a character. I mean, I remember like uh, Mark Wade saying, um, you know, Mark, I think it's Mark Wade's Batman says chum, and Greg Rucker's. Uh, Batman would never say the word chum, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and both of these are completely faithful Batmans, you know, and it's like, what is your take on this icon? And so like in comics, there is more of a tradition on let's have a radical take, you know, let, or like, let's see how Kieran Gillen's Batman would look. Um, Cause it would be very different to um, uh, like Matt Fraction's uh, Batman or Kelly Sue DeConnick's Batman. And that's kind of part of the fun. Cause it's like, you're playing with a myth. Um, so all those things, so you kind of like have a lot more freedom in Marvel, and especially like when you come to a writer like me, it's like they want to give have a take. You know, it's like, well, what's your take on the Hulk? I mean, look at um, uh, my, my my lovely good friend Al Ewing who took over the Hulk recently, and he, Hulk has been lots of things over the years. And normally, like every new creator has a big take on the Hulk, and uh, Al's was, I'm going to do the Hulk as a horror book, like a big Gnostic horror book, and it absolutely works. Um, and whoever comes next will almost certainly do something completely different. Um, this is one of the reasons why I'm taking over Eternals. And Eternals is a book um, which uh, Jack Kirby created in the late 70s and has been sort of reapproached re a few times. And the fact they tend to be quite supporting characters in the universe, one that gives me slightly more leeway to recreate them you know what i mean mm -hmm. as in like since they're not because they haven't been published every month and there's been lots of different takes and they're not as a as popular as spider-man at least not yet um you can kind of go and go okay what is about the eternals how can i make this sing and this is when you actually end up doing the really hard world building because i in the case of the eternals what i end up doing is i look at the entire history of the eternals in the marvel universe and see okay how can i tie this together and make this into a coherent whole you know what i mean it's more like um it's more like it's like, more like world renovating rather than world building. It's like there's a house, and I go in it. Okay, how can I put in like an an extra a loft ex extension? You know, can I put like a, a new patio down? Maybe they have an office in the garden. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, that, that's kind of what the job is. And what connective possibilities are here that no one else has seen yet? So it can turn something that was due to the nature of the rainforest, the Marvel universe, into something like glacially imperfect and absolutely as coherent as anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the most recently, uh, Jonathan Hickman, who I mentioned earlier, took over the X-Men. And Jonathan Hickman's take on the X-Men is, okay, let's really go to town. And he's changed a lot of stuff and had a big idea and it's sort of reimagined what the X-Men could be in 2020. And that's kind of what, you know, the job is on Eternals. I find the work for higher jobs appealing in some ways because it's very much, okay, here's, I've got the skill set. I've got an aesthetic and approach to the work. Okay, which ones of my skills are appropriate in this one situation? You know, it's fun. It's a slightly different exercise. Yeah, it sounds like you really relish the almost like a puzzle quality of, of how you can intersect yourself into this pre-existing thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of like, okay, um, how can I make myself care about this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd say that sounds incredibly um, cynical. But um, uh, me paraphrasing uh, Scott Snyder, uh, the Batman, mainly a Batman writer. Uh, obviously very important right in the industry and he sort of described the difference from doing your own writing and working for like marvel or dc is if you're doing um uh your own writing you've got this thing you care about intensely you know you've got this world these characters and you need to find desperately find a way to make someone else care about this conversely if you're doing stuff like marvel and dc you've got this thing that so many other people already care about intensely and you have to find a way to care about yourself um, and for, for me as a work for high like a lot of my thing is how can I care intensely about this? This is one of the things where I um you know, I sit down, okay, why you know, this character if I like them already, that's a bit easier. But what you end up doing there is deconstructing why you like the character. So you can try to say something useful with them. But if it's a character you maybe like or have less of an emotional connection it is, it's a bit like falling in love. Like you do the research and you think about them and you kind of build enough emotional connections to these things until you can commit to it as if you were writing it something you already owned yourself yeah young avengers seems like a good example there because it's something that is clearly very marvel just by its title uh but it also from the off feels very kieran gillard as well um yeah i mean thank you i mean 
Young Avengers is the, is the extreme example of what I just laid out then. And it was like, let's write a Marvel book and pretend like, you know, pretend we owned it. <laughs> was the way I put it. Like, you know, treat it like a creator-owned book. Can you do uh, a pop statement like that at Marvel? And the answer was eh, maybe. You know, there was de- there was definitely limitations to what we could pull off. Um, but at the same time, it, it led to results that people seemed to like. But it's like there's a lot of interplay between these things. Like the world building I do. Uh, actually, I mentioned Hickman again. Uh, I remember Hickman, I was on a world building panel with him and he described me as a god, uh, which I obviously laughed at. But what he meant was what you started with at the start of this um, is that I, it appears that everything is so planned. You know, I know the place where every leaf is in the creation. And there's other people who are a lot more freeform and a lot more like playful and uh, actually playful is the wrong word, um, exploratory. And those skills come from my creator own work. You know, this is like where I've got to do most work. And like, and I, you should see the size of the document I sent in for Eternals. Like I've done, um, uh, it's just ludicrous. I've, I've designed the name generator for the Eternals. Like there's a species called the Deviants. And I basically coded something as in physically sat down and programmed <laughs> something that generates Deviant names. And I took all the existing Deviant names in the Marvel canon, broke them into, broke them into phonetics, and then have this thing that churns out Deviant names uh you know what i mean yeah. so like that's pretty full-on world building but it's still nothing compared with die you know because um die is like it's a, me exploring 200 years of history across multiple um art forms and trying to synthesize it mm. and that's kind of the um the put how the two go back and forth and like it's just one of the else, it's one of the things i really do like about comics in that it's a quite quick moving medium and I get to sort of stretch various muscles and go and do one thing, then come back and do another. Um, and, you know, and hoping that eventually I'll get around to writing a novel and try to bring some of the skill set over and see what happens then. Right. Yeah. Presumably Marvel these days know what they're getting into when they hire you. <laughs> it's almost like I had actually stopped working for Marvel for a while. Like um, I stopped like in 2014, 2015, the Marvel universe. And I was just doing Star Wars for a few years. And they lured me back recently, uh, as I said, with the Eternals and this the Warhammer comics, because I'm a, I'm a big Warhammer nerd on the quiet. Um, and part of it was having a break. And part of it was like, I want to take the skills I learned on Die and Wiktiv and apply them to a Marvel book and show you what that could look like again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you definitely kind of hope that people know what they get when they ask for me. I remember like when my publisher of Uber introduced me to Garth Ennis. <laughs> uh, and Goff's and you know, so, oh, it's just Kieran. He's a he was the one who's doing this book Uber I told you about. You know, the one with like the thirty thousand word Bible. <laughs> and I go, mm, you're a bit keen, aren't you? <laughs> uh, by which, and of course, Kieran, you are a SWAT. Uh, <laughs> and you know, fair, uh, fair cop. Yep. Something you mentioned earlier was uh, how you know when you get hired by people to come into Star Wars or particularly Marvel that. You know they're they're hiring you because they they want a writer like you with your sensibilities and style to imprint on whatever their thing is. Um, and obviously at this point in time, you're very established. You've done tons of different books, and people do know what a Kieran Gillen book is in, in in some sense. But I'm curious about earlier in your career, uh, just to take a slight tangent away from world building. But mm. near the start of your career, when maybe people didn't know what what your own books were going to be like uh, how that was different back then you're right that's true i mean especially if you're talking about the um the, the career-based aspects of writers especially if you're somebody who wants to do work for you know works on other people's properties which isn't always true for novelists you know novelists there's the idea of doing a licensed novel is I wouldn't say a scarlet letter in for novel writers, but it's certainly that's something that's slightly less accepted than in comics, where you know Alan Moore could write anything he wants and no one blinks. You know the idea that uh, the most credible creators might decide to write a superhero comic because they want to. You know why not? And that's that sort of speaks to the history of the two forms, as in comics have always had a fundamental distributability to it. In my case, like my first book was a book called Phonogram, and Phonogram was. Um, as I said earlier, it's a sort of soft edge fantasy and it's very, very great. It's, it's very grounded. It's all real bands. It's all basically like metaphorical music journalism. And people liked it and it reviewed well, uh, but it didn't really show I could write any superhero comics. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> um, and also I got, a, I was lucky enough to get a break on a Marvel book. I wrote an issue and that kind of showed that 
I could write superhero comics, which started leading me to getting other work. But a lot of it is just kind of finding ways to twist whatever you are doing to show you what you can do, especially in comics or novels. You are really going to be showing what you can do in that first book, you know, or like the level of complexity or like, or, or lack of complexity. Cause like writing um, in a light and accessible way is a, is a huge skill in and of itself. Um, it's really that almost everything you do is a calling card. That's the, that's the weird thing. I did, um, like in comics, I'd say my first comic was Phonogram. That's just not true. I came up for the small press. So I was working in um, uh, in a part-time format in very much like the fanzines. I was self-publishing. I was doing stuff for other people's anthologies. I was running anthologies. I did web comics. And all those kind of like small things like these little one or two page comics in, in some cases were basically like calling cards to sh- this is the sort of thing i do uh, and i started off like i remember like this first comic i did and it took me six pages and i'll just drew it and put it online and uh, you know a couple of other artists said hey i like that um you ever want to do something give me a shout and that's kind of how it worked all the way through my career in terms of like me doing the work that i wanted to sh- you know that i wanted to show what i could do led to me being able to do have more avenues because people ended up knowing me i mean the danger of course is like you only ever do work that skews too tightly to something that people already want and that's you know i, I when i say that i sound like i'm down at it, down at the concept but at the same time you know there's there's many really efficient writers. well that's okay now i'm showing my hand efficient writers could i be more <laughs> insulting um, but there's definitely writers who want to be more invisible and conversely, I'm somebody who never wanted to be an invisible writer. You know, I always wanted to have a voice which people recognised. And like, whilst you kind of, there's a flexibility of what I do. Like, as I said, compare, you know, Uber and Young Avengers. The idea that you'll have this kind of overthought coherency, <laughs> you know, I, I at the very least take it very seriously. Um, even, you know, even when I'm being very playful, I'm, I'm, I've clearly overthought everything. Um and that's what the aesthetic you try to apply to all the things, I guess. This is what I mean. It's like, I'm going to mention Hickman again. It's like Hickman's first work at Marvel was pretty much the Fantastic Four, I think. And Hickman approached the Fantastic Four like a Hickman comic. You know, he came from a background of the same generation of me, creators. And he was, um, he did these very design-led comics. He was an artist as well, but he did a lot of like design pages, a lot of graphs, a lot of like uh, stuff that read like um, a PowerPoint, you know, <laughs> and he integrated that in his comic stories. And he still does that now. But like the idea that you could have this slightly intellectual, cold and distant, but kind of like clinical storytelling style, that's kind of what he did to his Fantastic Four, you know, and he approached it like a Jonathan Hickman book, uh, whilst at the same time being a Fantastic Four book. Um, and I guess that's it. It's kind of the idea is to twist any opportunity to a chance to be yourself. Because in a very real way, if you're not if you're not using the voice which makes you interesting, I don't really see the point in doing it. You know, mm. this is the thing I always say for like new comic creators, like when they're talking about what they want to do as their first book. I always strongly advise them to do whatever they think only they could do. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was pitching phonogram early on. Uh, and I was doing another book at the same time, and it was it was like a, a supernatural SAS comic. You know, what I mean, it's like, almost every writer has got that sort of high concept. The idea: let's do something that's a bit special forces, but with a mystical angle. I mean, the Old Guard, which is um, an excellent comic and a, a, a strong uh, movie mm. recently, is an example of that sort of thing. Uh, so I wrote this pitch and I showed it to a friend of mine, and she um, she said, "Yeah, this is good. This is fun, pulp. But do you want this to be your first comic?" You know, and I was a little bit defensive because, you know, what's a writer about being defensive? Um, I said, no, it's, you know, it's just very clearly political and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I sort of sat back and realized, yeah, she's right. You know, like the perspective this book is showing is, you know, it's, it's fun and does a lot of really very me things. But it's something that someone else could write and it would be fine. And so I, I threw all my, um, you know, put all my eggs in the phonogram basket because phonogram is very specifically a burst of pure but my own perspective about how art matters and photogram was written with the idea that you know if i only do one comic in my life it would be it it would be this you know mm-hmm. uh, and i'll be fine with that yeah um but obviously that's an enormous risk because like what's if no one likes your voice but at the same time <laughs> um it definitely is a it's a way that makes people realize who you are um and i strongly recommend that 
because it's like the thing about will this comes back to what we were saying earlier like the thing about world building is world building exists through a character's eyes and the and the narrator and the you know whoever's writing the story is also a set of eyes so world building is really about how you see the world you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so like and that percolates you know everything in a story i think yeah and it's interesting now to trace your work back you know if you go back through your recent stuff and particularly obviously wicked and divine and but they're also young avengers and then you go back to phonogram and you can look at it and go oh, that kind of makes sense I mean, it's interesting. I mean, comics is interesting because you do have to iterate quite quickly in different ways. But I always do think about those alternate ones. Like, well, you know, I was pitching at Vertigo, who is mainly a sort of fancy and horror for adults label over at DC. Um, but, you know, in the end, Marvel said yes to more of my stuff. So I ended up being like a superhero right for four years. Mm. Can you like imagine the other timeline where I just did horror comics in that same period? Mm. <laughs> you know, like, who, who am I now? And you just you just can't tell. But like, you kind of hope there's something fundamental about the way you do things that might follow through. Yeah. Yeah. On the podcast, we talk a lot about the writing life and also how people got into their careers. So this is all really, really useful stuff for people to know kind of what direction to go in or not go in. Um, and I think from my point of view, I was, I think I read your stuff in PC gamer back in the day <laughs> and I was a regular rock, paper, shotgun reader, uh, but somehow completely missed your transition into comics. Um, I just clearly wasn't paying attention at the time. And then I was reading Straczynski's Thor, I think, that then you took over that when he stopped. Um, and my brain did that sort of double take thing when I started connecting the name on the comic to the name on the gaming blog that I'd been reading for years and all this kind of thing. Um, and I think from the outside, it, it looked like you'd sort of just effortlessly shifted from one successful career into another successful career um but i don't know how it felt on the inside yeah but there's definitely the standing outside cons handing out flyers period is not stuff that happens in public <laughs> um I, I used to always like um when i was a journalist i since i was freelance for most of that period i had the basic rule that i did only did stuff that earned money during the day and at night i wrote stuff that didn't earn money or quite often cost money because <laughs> it's a you know it's comics um and as i as i started getting offered more actual quote-unquote work uh like um you know the bits of work for hire from marvel and, and like avatars work that started happening i started doing that during the day and i reached a point around 2008 or so when i realized that most of my money was coming through comics and then i just did that sort of a mental flip in my head that i'm no longer like a journalist who like part-time does comics and i'm a comic writer who dabbles in journalism mm. um but yeah i'm very aware that I mean, I was all, I think around 2000, it must have been. I got to, I started reading comics properly in 2000. And it was like 2001, 2002, 2003 is that kind of bit when I started going into the comic culture and started writing zines. Like I met Jamie in 2002, 2003. And that's when I started, you know, really spending all my spare time doing this. Um, but yeah, it is a kind of, you're very aware that definitely about like, especially when I got into comics, you got people who read me in PC Gamer fell out of games and got into comics and they found me like waiting in comics <laughs> and just kind of like, I can't escape this man. <laughs> we should talk about Ludocrats. Yes. Which is the most, um, Ludocrats is, uh, basically a date in 2003. This is the most, um, PC gamer thing I ever did, I guess. Me and, uh, Jim Rosignol, who was like a staff writer on PC gamer when I was like deputy editor. Uh, actually eventually reviews editor as well. And we were launched a website called Rock Paper Shotgun with John Walker and Alec Mir. But around 2003, we did an exquisite corpse. An exquisite corpse is when writers basically pass something back and forth and continue from each other. And we did basically a correspondence between ludocrats. And it was basically the idea of these aristocrats of a ludicrous in a fantasy universe um, sending, you know, sending letters back and forth. And we did that for quite a while. And we got to basically the point where we knew where the story might have ended. And then we kind of just stopped. And it just it carried on as a running joke. And as I was getting into comics in that, you know, Phonogram came out in 2006. And I was thinking about doing it, more comic stuff. In the end, actually, launching RPS took that time, so I couldn't do it. But we started working on a comic of Ludacris in 2007. Uh, and that didn't go anywhere for a variety of reasons. And then we tried again in 2013, 2014, 2015. And then there was another problem. Uh, and we could have had to basically stop again. And eventually, last year, third try, we managed to actually start doing it again properly. And it's, it's coming out at the moment. The, issue, the final issue is about to happen. And it's just it's still so weirdly got the same core of in 20, 
sorry, 2003. Mm-hmm. These kind of, um, we're really influenced like Burroughs and Mikei Takeshi, the, the, the filmmaker, and all that kind of early extreme cinema of the period, and Asterix and Oblix and the Meta Barons. And the idea was just, um, this actually kind of is an alpha and omega of what we're talking about here in terms of like something like Uber, which is at least gives the impression of being planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludocrats is me and Jim making stuff up and then then in the in the language of um, improv, saying yes to each other. <laughs> so like the, the Ludocrats world building is, you know, me and Jim just throwing ideas at each other and then just adding on top and top and top until we get to this point of ludicrousness. It's kind of like the... Um, like the never-ending story, the idea this is a land of imagination. It's like that, but for adults. Um, not necessarily mature, because it's very silly, but it's definitely uh, it's definitely adult-rated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and it's fun. You know, where we've had... And I must say, it feels like the missing piece of my history in terms of, like, you know, you, as I said, you described, like, Uber and all these other books. Ludicrous absolutely fits in there. There's so much work in Ludicrous, but it's so much work on something that's fundamentally silly. It's like as if... Um, if the Ramones had spent like 10 years uh, trying to sort out the exact guitar sound they wanted uh, to play three chords over. Yeah, I think it struck me because having read a lot of your other stuff, um, I've only read the first issue of Ludicrats so far. But yeah, it, uh, on the surface, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about, certainly from that first issue, it feels like Ludicrats is very deliberately um, you know, not going down that kind of hyper-detailed Uber kind of route and, and feels so freewheeling and that anything can happen <laughs> But yeah, yeah, like you say, it sounds like you've still got a very clear idea of kind of what the rules are, even if the rules are that it should be ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did that for the. Um, it's all you say that, and it's absolutely it's an aggressive romance of a book. But like, even then, it's like there's all those pages of like essays in the back and like annotations and <laughs> uh, whatever else is in there. It's that kind of the. It's still a lot, uh, and that's kind of what kind of comes over from like stuff like die and uber even mm-hmm. is the idea that you know you put the hours in i guess yeah yeah it was interesting having jim rossignol in there because i remember when signal from tolva came out and they included mm-hmm. this digital booklet with it that was just masses and masses of uh kind of world building lore stuff which is, affects the game in to a degree but essentially it's just this whole kind of standalone fascinating science fiction universe that you don't really need to know any of it, <laughs> but I kind of poured through it. Um, and yeah, Ludicrats, I can, you can almost trace a line from that to that, I think, in that it's just mm. this kind of detail upon detail of like, oh, what if this could happen? <laughs> it's not like one of those untold history sort of stories of creative rivalry. And this kind of, I actually often think about the interaction between Jim's projects over at Big Robot and my projects like as a comic creator. And there's a sort of an implicit dialogue between them. I think there's, um, I did a book called Journey into Mystery at Marvel and did a lot of stuff about um, an industrial revolution in the other world, as in the Alfurian fairyland, the idea of an industrial revolution happening there. Um, and Jim was doing uh, Sir, Are You Being Hunted? Which is kind of like a sort of class warfare, steampunk robot game. Also, ironically, looking at the British, the idea of what is British countryside, and that kind of—I see those two projects very much in conversation with each other. And Ludocrats is kind of—I um, I think Ludocrats is kind of a, an expression of like the conversation between me and Jim's work in a very pure way, uh, a very impure, pure way, but certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly there. Right. Well, Kieran, thank you so much for that. I feel like I could probably spend the rest of the day talking about this with you, but uh, I should probably let you go. Um, in terms of where people should go to to find your work or to find you, uh, where, where's the best places to point them? Well, uh, basically, Kieran Gillen on Twitter is probably the useful, most useful sort of centre place. There's actually a KieranGillen.com. Uh, that's K-I-E-R-O-N-G-I-L-L-E-N.com, which is basically a, a HTML page with links to a few other places right now. Uh, I haven't got around to actually rebuilding it. I mean, it's possible. The best thing to do is sign up for my newsletter and then you'll hear me waffle at length to you on a semi-weekly basis. Uh, but Twitter is a good place to find as well. Yeah, great. And yeah, all the comics we've talked about are available and uh, you've got lots more coming out, including Eternals. So very exciting stuff. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been love to be here. Thanks for listening and thanks to Kieran for such a fascinating chat. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're over on Facebook. You can catch up with our recent free online events on YouTube. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. 
Don't forget to check down in the show notes or indeed over on the website for all of the rest of the early career writers resources. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast because it does help other people to find it and makes us feel all warm and jolly. Warm and fuzzy. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.